On a recent spring day in Washington, D.C., several hundred people gathered in front of the Capitol building, the home of the United States Congress, to protest against global warming. Demonstrators dressed in polar bear suits wander among the crowd. Dozens of volunteers hand out flyers and wave placards, and a constant stream of activists and liberal politicians take to a temporary stage, calling for more action on climate change. Well, I am just delighted to see all of you out here. Oh, thank you! Among them is Californian Democratic Senator Barbara Boxer, a vocal advocate of environmental issues. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. Because this country has done so little, if anything, about this challenge, that's the bad news. The good news is there's so much we can do now. So much we can do now with your help. Compared to other recent rallies prompted by such issues as the war in Iraq, immigration and abortion, this demonstration is tiny. But despite their lack of numbers, protesters such as Randy and Barbara Swart of nearby Arlington, Virginia, believe their cause is on a roll. Five or ten years ago it was a fringe issue and only a few people like Al Gore were pushing it. Uh, today everybody's seen Al Gore's movie. It's very impressive. Not everybody, but most of the people here anyway. It's very impressive. The, the issue is finally moving to the fore. Let me say no more than about two years ago, if I told people that I was going to try to concentrate on green issues, they didn't know what that meant. They didn't know what green was. I hear people now, they understand what it means. So, yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic that we're going to get moving on this. While the debate in the U.S. over global warming is far from over, it appears that the Swartz optimism isn't unfounded, as results from a number of reputable polls seem to demonstrate. In a survey carried out for researchers at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology last September, respondents ranked climate change as the country's most pressing environmental problem, up from a placing of sixth out of ten such concerns three years earlier. In early February, a Fox News poll found that 82% of Americans believe in global warming, up from 77% in late 2005. And a Gallup poll released this month found 80% of respondents back strengthening government restrictions on greenhouse gas emissions and spending more taxpayer money on developing solar and wind power. At the Pew Centre on Global Climate Change, a centrist think tank that calls the issue the most pressing global environmental problem of the 21st century, the organisation's president, Eileen Clawson, says momentum on the issue has definitely shifted over the past 10 years. There's no question. Um, I think there was um, a lot more being heard from sceptical scientists. The politicians were not even close to accepting that this was something they had to do with. Uh, the business community wished it would go away. Um, and it certainly wasn't something that was on the mind of most Americans. Um, and that has changed dramatically. And in fact, it's even changed dramatically over the last six months. Eileen Clawson says two main factors are behind the shift. The first is the activity at the state level in the United States. There are a lot of states that have decided to curb their greenhouse gas emissions. Um, there are 10 states in the Mid-Atlantic and New England who have decided to limit emissions from power plants. The state of California has a very aggressive piece of legislation that they're going to be implementing. Um, the state of California is now working with the states of New Mexico, Arizona, Washington, and Oregon um, to do something on a regional level. 
There are 22 states that have renewable requirements uh, in their energy mix. So there's been a huge amount of activity at the state level. And that has spurred business to think about whether they would prefer to be regulated in different ways in 50 different states or whether they would prefer some kind of a national policy and national legislation. And so there now is a sizable group in the private sector who is saying, I think we need a national policy. So while the issue of global warming has been bubbling along at the state level and in business circles for several years now, in the nation's capital, it's only in the past six months that it's done anything more than quietly simmer. I don't think we've ever seen an environmental issue so explode onto the scene like global warming has since the elections in November. Tim Profetta is the director of the Nicholas Institute, an environmental policy centre at Duke University in North Carolina, who, while working as an environmental lawyer earlier this decade, helped draft bipartisan climate change legislation that ultimately failed that would have capped U.S. emissions at the level they were in the year 2000. Up until last November's congressional elections, the Republican Party held the majority of seats in the United States' two parliamentary chambers, the Senate and the House of Representatives, and had done so for 12 years. That majority status gave the Republicans the ability to shape the political agenda, until the balance of power shifted to the Democrats this year. Tim Profeta says... Until the change, global warming did not feature. My analogy is that it's, it's like a pressurized system that had been kept down for a long time. The Republican majority in Congress kept global warming from being able to be debated in, in Washington, but all this activity in the states and in the constituency groups and by Al Gore in this movie has built up this pressure for action. And when it took the lid off by taking the Republican majority out of the Congress and put the Democrats in charge, just like when you would shake a bottle of Coke and take off the lid, it exploded everywhere. There is a, there's a euphoria in, amongst those who advocate for global warming in, so much, in that there's so much activity for action on global warming now. The problem with exploding soft drink bottles, Tim Profeta is quick to note, is that the outcome is messy and figuring out how to address climate change and deal with the inevitable impact on the economy of whatever path is chosen will be complicated. One group that suggested a way forward is the United States Climate Action Partnership, or USCAP, a coalition of somewhat unusual bedfellows. USCAP's membership includes not only four environmental groups, but 12 major corporations, all of whom want the central government to step in and regulate businesses' greenhouse gas emissions. Global warming is a complex issue, but the group has a simple message. It's time for action. It is our judgment that despite the challenges, and there will be many, our businesses and the national economy can grow, prosper, and compete successfully in a greenhouse gas-constrained world. Congress needs to pass serious global warming legislation as quickly as possible, Let me repeat those last four words as quickly as possible. The group is calling for specific targets, which would gradually ratchet up limits on U.S. emissions, moving from a cap set at just over today's levels, to be reached within five years of any law being passed, to reductions of 60 to 80 percent by the middle of the century. The cornerstone of the plan is a national cap-and-trade program for carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. Under such a scheme, the government would set a limit on total emissions. 
That total would then be divided into individual emissions permits, which are allocated to companies. Businesses that reduce their emissions could sell their spare allowances to those that couldn't, in effect penalising polluters and rewarding those who lower their output of greenhouse gases. Backers also say the scheme would encourage investors to put money into the development of new clean energy sources because over time the price of emissions allowances would rise, making fossil fuels more expensive and going green more affordable. I think what we're talking about here is a, uh, the beginnings of a fundamental change to our economy. John Stoll is the Vice President of Environmental Health and Safety Policy at Duke Energy, one of the largest electricity generators in the United States. For 250 years, we've carbonized, and now what we're talking about is decarbonizing. And so this is going to bring in a whole slew of new technologies. It's going to, in my opinion, give um, a new growth to the uh, nuclear industry. Uh, there, are, uh, there are new toys out there that haven't been developed yet that will be as soon as there's a carbon price signal that will make those new technologies viable in the marketplace. Duke Energy which is a member of the U.S. Climate Action Partnership, is the third largest burner of coal in the country. But the company believes climate change legislation is inevitable, and the sooner it happens, the better, so that Duke and others know what regulatory environment they'll be facing as they plan billions of dollars of new investment to meet growing electricity demand. John Stoll is frank about whether Duke's involvement in U.S. CAP is a business decision or one based on a sense of corporate responsibility? It's a business decision. Um, I don't mean to sound like I'm not uh, in favor of the environment, but our first, our first um, responsibility is to protect the shareholders' investment in this company and to protect uh, the, our customers who are going to see increases in electric rates as a result of carbon legislation. What we want to do is have a bill enacted that mitigates those, um, those rate increases uh, so that there isn't that economic dislocation, so all of a sudden people aren't seeing day one a doubling of their bills, and so that the shareholders who have invested in this company are getting the value out of the company that exists today. But not everyone's so enthusiastic about the idea of mandatory limits on greenhouse gases. The American Petroleum Institute the Oil and Gas Industry Trade Association touts the benefits of voluntary efforts to address climate change rather than supporting mandated targets. The Coal Mining Association says one cap-and-trade proposal already before the Senate could see US coal producers paying as much as $15 billion annually out of total revenue of $30 billion for emissions allowances. Others contend that those who urge fast action in taking on global warming aren't basing their arguments in reality. Patrick Michaels, a senior fellow in environmental studies at the Washington, D.C.-based libertarian think tank, the Cato Institute, says people are falling for what he calls the science fiction of Al Gore's and inconvenient truth, with its portrayal of large rises in sea levels and environmental catastrophes. I think the issue has political attention, uh, but people are not being candid about what is scientifically possible. And in a way, the political attention may be premature and the product of, I think, uh, essentially a climate of hysteria on this issue, which is not scientifically warranted. Patrick Michaels acknowledges some global warming is happening and humans have a role in it. 
but believes the degree of future climate change and its impacts will be modest. He also says emissions reductions targets are based on wishful thinking about new technology and that at this point trying to slow, stop and reverse emissions doesn't make sense. Well, none of those actions in any conceivable policy time frame are going to have any effect on temperature. You know, the people who make the argument that if you want to get the Earth uh, off the warming trajectory that it is on, that you have to reduce emissions substantially, they're correct. But nobody knows how to do this. And uh, the fear that I have is in the current, I think, heated environment, politically, uh, tremendous mistakes could be made. Expensive policies that will do nothing when the best thing would be, I think, uh, the more prudent way of saving your resources for investment in the technologies of, of the future rather than wasting them on a futile attempt to stop warming today. The Bush administration says it is confronting global climate change and that it acknowledges the issue is a serious challenge. Well, the uh, Earth is warming. Uh, humans are part of the problem, and we need to get on with the solutions. Uh, the solutions are summed up with three words, technology, technology, and technology. And we're very focused on bringing forward a new generation of technologies that will help us tackle this problem. That's James Connerton, the chairman of the White House's Council on Environmental Quality, which oversees the development and implementation of environmental policy across more than a dozen government departments. He says the United States has come in for a lot of unfounded criticism in the wake of President Bush's decision to not ratify the Kyoto Protocol. He believes critics haven't taken account of initiatives such as the $1 billion in tax credits the administration has awarded to spur the development of low-carbon coal-burning power generation, a goal of bringing down the cost of solar energy to make it competitive with conventional electricity sources by 2015, and the fact that the U.S. is working with China and India, the major carbon dioxide emitters in the developing world, under a partnership aimed at creating and sharing clean technology. But one thing the administration does not favour is a cap-and-trade scheme for greenhouse gases. We are deeply concerned about uh, the cap-and-trade proposals um, to the extent that those that are out there um, are designed in a way that could shift uh, emission reductions from America to emissions increases in other countries. And that's what we want to avoid. This It's called leakage. It does us no good to put Americans out of work if we're merely employing more people abroad and increasing air pollution and greenhouse gases. Uh, that's not a winning combination. So who's right? Would a cap-and-trade system help or hurt the U.S. economy? The truth is that no one knows. Bill Antholis is an expert on international economic and climate change policy with the Centrist Brookings Institution in Washington. He says numerous studies have looked at different ways of reducing greenhouse gas emissions and tried to predict their impact. One pointer may be the rocky start experienced by the European Union's emissions trading scheme. Another may be the success of the cap-and-trade program the US introduced in the 1990s to reduce sulphur dioxide emissions from fossil fuel-fired power plants. But Bill Antholis notes trying the same thing with carbon dioxide is an entirely different ballgame. Doing a cap-and-trade system for carbon dioxide is much more complicated because the, the forms of energy production that create greenhouse gas emissions, particularly carbon emissions, are so diverse. It's everything from a wood-burning stove to a coal-fired power plant to a natural gas electricity generator for a, an aluminum smelting operation. 
And regulating that across an economy as big as ours has never really been done before. We don't know if there are going to be breakthrough technologies that make all of this cheap and easy, or if it's going to be a long, hard slog. The electricity industry, which is responsible for about 40% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, is one sector that's taking a long, hard look at the issue. The largely industry-funded Electric Power Research Institute, or EPRI, recently carried out a study looking at the potential for the sector to cut carbon output over the coming decades using a range of technologies, from those available today, such as energy efficiency measures, to future options that are still in their infancy, like advanced solar and nuclear power, and procedures for capturing and storing CO2 from coal-fired generators. The director of the Institute's Technology Assessment Centre, Revis James, says the sector could make a big dent in its emissions, possibly by as much as 40% by the year 2030. The finding is that there is a significant technical potential to reduce CO2 emissions, um, to slow, stop and create a decline in emissions. Uh, So that gives us a lot of hope that it's worthwhile to make a significant investment in research and development and demonstration to uh, develop these technologies so that we have the full array of technology options. However, the study assumed there would be little in the way of economic and regulatory roadblocks to developing and rolling out all the options, something Rivers James acknowledges will be an issue. You know, there are clearly some other barriers that will have to be overcome to deploy these technologies. It's not only a technology challenge. Um, Policies will have to exist in some areas to enable the widespread introduction of some of these technologies. For example, nuclear power or, for example, a much wider uh, deployment of of efficiency uh, strategies would require some different types of electricity rate structures, would require um, some... uh, market structures that don't fully exist today. So there are other challenges as well. Moves to figure out a way through such challenges are underway. For one thing, the leadership of the now democratically controlled Congress has vowed to make global warming legislation a priority. The man whose job it is to come up with such legislation is the chairman of the House of Representatives Energy and Air Quality Subcommittee, Congressman Rick Boucher of Virginia. He says he's working towards having a proposal before the full House this Northern Hemisphere autumn and for both chambers of Congress to put a bill on President Bush's desk before the end of next year. It is an aggressive schedule. Uh, My sense, however, is that the task is achievable. In part, that's because the private sector has, uh, with virtually lightning speed in terms of the normal pace at which the private sector moves on major legislative issues, Uh, has now decided to come to the table and participate in drafting a mandatory measure. That effort is led by energy companies, by coal-fired electric utilities in particular. They are joined now at the table by the chemical industry, by electricity generators who sell electricity into the wholesale market, by the um, American automobile manufacturers. For now, Rick Boucher says he can't say what form a mandatory program is likely to take, or what timelines and targets will be set for emissions reductions. But he does believe that the most critical elements of any legislative proposal will be ensuring that no particular sector of the U.S. economy is dislocated and that it takes account of whether other countries also commit to reducing greenhouse gases. Rick Boucher says controlling U.S. emissions would come at some considerable cost to consumers, And lawmakers will see no sense in that if nations such as China, which is expected to become the world's biggest emitter of CO2 in 2009, are free of similar burdens.
But the congressman says there are some ways around that problem. One of the uh, utility executives in, in the United States has proposed that uh, for countries that do not have a mandatory control program, every item that is imported into the United States from that country carry with it an emission credit that is equal to the contribution that the manufacturer of that item made to greenhouse gas emissions. This would be a powerful lever to assure that developing countries, in fact, adopt their own programs. They might find uh, the cost of importing their products to be somewhat prohibitive if they don't. Another possibility would be to provide what some are referring to as an off-ramp, meaning that uh, if at the time that the controls that are scheduled to take effect in our legislation actually take effect, the developing world does not have mandatory programs in place, then our controls would not take effect either. Rick Boucher says instead of the off-ramp provision idea, he has some preference for requiring importers to buy carbon credits if need be, although he concedes that might butt up against international trade rules on imposing tariffs. On the other side of the table... The committee's ranking Republican, Dennis Hastert, says while he accepts global warming is occurring, he isn't convinced human activity is a large contributor to it. However, he says the US has a responsibility to do what it can to clean up the environment, and he had this to say when asked if there is enough support in Congress to pass some form of global warming legislation in the next couple of years. You know, I can only speak for the House of Representatives. Uh, I think that there's a feeling that we should try to pass... Uh, a comprehensive bill that makes sense and uh, that uh, reduces greenhouse gases, re- reduces uh, harmful emissions, and those are sulfur and mercury and other things that uh, we emit into the air. And uh, I think we have a very good cooperation between Democrats and Republicans to try to do that right now. And it should happen by this summer, or does it make more sense to wait until 08, 09, when there's more certainty around the science, the economics? Well, you know, I, I'm a strong believer in do what you can do now. And those things that you know, those things that you can do, you ought to move forward and get them done when you can. You may never get another chance. One thing is certain. Hammering out the details of any climate change legislation involves plenty of tough questions. How much should emissions be cut by and when? Should all sectors be expected to make the same level of cuts? Should the government provide financial assistance to industries and regions to help cushion the blow of the economic impact? If introducing a cap-and-trade scheme, do you give emissions allowances only to businesses that produce CO2 now, or do you allocate some to those who've already weaned themselves off fossil fuels? Just how long it will take to work out such details is still up in the air, according to Jennifer Lakey, the Deputy Director of the Climate and Energy Program at the World Resources Institute, another partner in the U.S. CAP group. The jury is out on how quickly Congress is going to be able to digest this level of information, detailed information that they will need in order to make politically and economically um, satisfactory choices that can protect the environment in ways that we need them to, to take on now. It's going to take some time to make this work, but we have no time to spare. We have to take action quickly, and we're looking for a comprehensive program. Uh, so it's going to take all of our efforts to try and craft that quickly. What's also up in the air is whether a mandatory climate change program could go all the way to becoming law before the end of next year, when President Bush leaves office. 
Despite the current administration's long-stated opposition to the idea of putting a compulsory lid on greenhouse gas emissions, the Pew Centre's Eileen Clawson thinks it could change course. There is some discussion within the White House, even as I'm speaking to you now, about what kind of a system might be acceptable to the Bush administration. Um, My guess is that if there is enough industry support for the legislation that passes, and it won't pass without industry support, um, the president would be hard-pressed to veto it. The Brookings Institution's Bill Antholis explains why the president could face mounting pressure to change his stance. What is also sort of driving and shaping the debate are the fact that not just most Democratic candidates for the presidency have come out in support of mandated reductions of greenhouse gas emissions, but three of the leading Republican contenders for the White House, uh, Rudolph Giuliani, John McCain, and Mitt Romney, all support reducing greenhouse gas emissions much more than this president does. So many in industry, I think, uh, believe that it would be better to have this president, who has been um, the least aggressive of many leading Republicans in advocating for climate change action, uh, that it's better to get a deal with this guy than the devil that follows. Tim Profeta from Duke University's Nicholas Institute says such thinking may also push some members of Congress who wouldn't typically be expected to vote for a climate change bill to do so. However, he's picking that potential hang-ups will mean legislation won't pass until 2009, after the next presidential election. I still think that two dynamics may hold us up this Congress. One is there are just too many hard issues to get through. And two, the environmental community may get to a point where they don't think the deal this Congress is good enough. The euphoria of the moment has, has got them very bullish on the possibilities. And the, the legislation that Boucher and Dingle would produce may not be acceptable to the left. And we could end up with a situation where it's actually the left that stops it from happening. The Cato Institute's Patrick Michael says he doesn't think that any proposal that cuts emissions a lot, enough to actually have an effect on temperatures, will get past George Bush's desk. He also says it may not even get that far until 2009, though like others, he's hesitant to make firm predictions. The change over of the Congress in the last election certainly uh, gives more power to those who would, would pass legislation on this issue. Uh, but again, there there is dissension, I think, within those ranks as to whether one really wants to pass something now with a Republican president and a veto pen, or maybe one would want to wait until January of 2009 when you might have a Democratic president who's not going to veto anything like that. High speculation. I mean, y- you're asking me to forecast politics. Climate's easier. In the meantime... Policymakers and advocates on both sides of the debate will be watching closely early next month when the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change releases its latest report, this one on options for reducing greenhouse gases and mitigating global warming.